Good morning again, Hill family. If you have a Bible, please open it to Acts chapter 18 is where we will be this morning, continuing our series through the book of Acts. If you're new to the Hill, we typically take books of the Bible and preach through them consecutively. We've been in Acts for a little over a year. We've made it to chapter 18 this morning, and we're going to tackle all of chapter 18 this morning. So we're going to move quickly through our wonderful text this morning. Discouragement can meet us at nearly every moment of our lives. As you're making your way to chapter 18 of Acts, I'm going to turn your mind to, you don't have to turn there in the scriptures, but turn your mind to 1 Kings chapter 18. In that chapter, the prophet Elijah, he has a great showdown with Israel's wicked king Ahab and his prophets of Baal on the famous Mount Carmel. And due to the nation's rebellion and pagan worship, God brought a severe famine, a severe drought, I should say, upon the land. And He ordered Elijah to issue a challenge to Ahab to to gather all of Israel at Mount Carmel and bring his 450 false prophets to really a showdown to determine who is the true God. With the people of Israel uh, gathered, Elijah instructed Ahab to have his prophets prepare, prepare an offering as he would do the same, and that they would both call down their gods to rain down fire upon the altar to see as a display who was truly God and who the people should worship. After several useless attempts by Ahab's prophet and some, uh, what's the right word, some Agging along by Elijah, he instructed or he instructed the people there to pour large vats of water on the offering multiple times until it was completely drenched of all their reservoirs of water. And remember, this is severe famine or severe drought. Then Elijah prayed and God sent fire from heaven to consume the burnt offering. It says the woods, the stones and all the water was consumed, causing all the people then to fall on their knees, confessing Elijah's God to be the only true God worthy of their worship. A short time later, under the instruction of the Lord, Elijah would then call down rain from heaven that covered the land and drenched all of Israel. This was a a mountaintop moment in the prophet's ministry in more than one way. The Lord worked powerfully, publicly through the prophet on Mount Carmel. And yet, just a few verses later, as Elijah descends the mountain, discouragement meets him at the bottom. Upon receiving a death death threat from Jezebel, the prophet flees to the wilderness, so overcome with discouragement and fear, the Lord has to send an angel twice to wake the prophet up, to literally feed him and sustain his life and his ministry going forward. Just footsteps away and mere moments beyond the the prophet's most powerful moment, discouragement settled into his soul. Does a scene like that seem familiar to you? Do you know what it's like to be moving along faithfully, walking and believing in the power of the gospel and then what seems like all of a sudden you become crippled by discouragement Doubt and fear. 
want a much less dramatic and really less overt scene this morning. The Apostle Paul finds himself in a season of discouragement to the point that God has to send the Apostle a word, a direct word from a vision commanding him, do not fear. And similar to the prophet Elijah, this comes at a at an unusual and really an unexpected moment in the life of the Apostle. Remember last week he stood in the Areopagus and he proclaimed the resurrection and he saw people turn from darkness to light. And yet after all of this, we find the Apostle in such a place that he needs a word of affirmation, a word of encouragement from the Lord to press on in ministry. In Acts 18, we learn just as we did from the life of Elijah that though discouragement can find us at any moment of life, God is also faithful in His grace to meet us and to see us through it. So I want to show you from Acts 18, and we're going to take the whole chapter apart, and hopefully I can show you this, that by His sustaining grace, God meets us in the difficult moments, in our difficult moments to empower us to persist in faithfulness. That God, by His sustaining grace, meets us in our difficult moments, our worst moments. He does so to empower us to persist in faithfulness. Is what we're going to see in Acts chapter 18. Before we unpack this text, let me go to the Lord for a brief moment ask His help. God, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the riches of it. Even as we are reminded, the Apostle speaks of the great mystery in it that has been revealed to us in Christ. So our aim this morning in walking through this entire chapter is to do just that, to be encountered by the mystery of Jesus, to show us Your grace in Your Son, that we might persist in faithfulness, that we might learn as You instruct the Apostle Paul to do not fear, keep on speaking, keep on preaching, for I am with You. So God bless our time in the text this morning, in Jesus' name, amen. Two simple points. It's a big chapter. Don't want to confuse it with points. So we're going to have just two headings, we might even say. Not even two points. We're going to begin with God's sustaining grace in Corinth. And then we're going to look at persistent faithfulness in Ephesus. So first, God's sustaining grace in Corinth. It says there, beginning, it says, After this, Paul left Athens and went to, Cor- to Corinth. You see that in the first line. And in these opening words, after this or that phrase, much is contained. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Now, while Paul had experienced many um, coming to faith in Athens, it's never an easy thing to be mocked as a babbler, a seed picker, to be called a fool. Rather than waiting for Timothy and Silas to arrive in Athens, remember he said he was waiting on them before they came, Paul felt the need to flee and go on to, uh, to Corinth. And Paul's experience in Athens came on the heels of his severe beating and imprisonment in Philippi, which was followed by his rejection in Thessalonica by the mob. Remember the, the rich religious stirred up a mob there. And then those same, that same mob, when Paul went 50 miles to Berea, remember that mob followed him, hunted him down, forcing him then to flee to Athens. So after, after all this, 
Paul now makes a 50-mile trek to Corinth, and it seems to be that he did that alone. And Corinth was no city of spiritual respite. For hundreds of years, the, the word Corinth was associated with sexual immorality. To Corinthianize was a description of moral decadence, really another way of saying what happens in Corinth stays in Corinth. In the so-called worship of the Greek goddess Aphrodite, thousands of prostitutes shaped the nightlife of Corinth. If your pockets were deep enough, any and everything was said to be for sale in Corinth. And when Paul writes the book of Romans, he does so from this very city, which no doubt framed his thoughts. Testifying to the depravity of man, of humanity, so very evident among him, he writes in Romans chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. Men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. That last phrase especially characterized Corinth. They were doing what ought not to be done. So with the weight of ministry already upon Paul, he now enters the dark city of Corinth this morning. And let me be clear up front, Paul remains, even this morning especially, a, faithful, a model of faithfulness at every turn in the text. We must see that. But it's easy, I believe, to miss the significance of Paul's life when we place the apostle on a pedestal as if he's some sort of superhero rather than a flesh and blood disciple like you and me. True, Paul was an apostle. But underneath that unique divine calling was a real man like you and me who was in desperate need at this moment of God's rejuvenating and sustaining grace as he enters the city of Corinth. Paul is tired. Paul is fearful, as we're going to see in a second. If Paul's not fearful, what role does verse 9 play, as we're going to read in just a moment? Paul's tired. He's struggling. He's fearful. Describing this season of ministry to the Philippian church, Paul spoke of them sharing. He says, I, so I want to thank you for sharing in my trouble. Chapter 4, verse 14. But we're going to see this morning that God in His grace meets the apostle to provide some needed spiritual rejuvenation. Paul is sustained by the grace of God. And that, of course, comes by way of this direct word from the Lord in verse 9. But it comes first in an unexpected way in verse 2. Look at verse 2 found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontius, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. God's sustaining grace is expressed to Paul through the presence of this couple named Aquila and Priscilla, or Priscilla and Aquila as we know them. And they're going to play a key role in gospel ministry for the apostle going forward. 
providentially due to some anti-Jewish presence from Rome, probably mixed in with some Christian persecution, this believing couple was forced to flee their business and take their business to Corinth. The husband's name was Aquila and his wife Priscilla, a form of the word Prisca, as she's referred in other places in the New Testament. Prisca being a, a well-known family, a name of a well-known family in Rome. It's highly probable, history believes, she was related to this family in some way, which could explain why many of the references in our own Bibles usually include her name mentioned first, something very uncommon at this time. We often read, and I'm sure you would recognize the names as not Aquila and Priscilla, but not Aquila and Priscilla, but Priscilla and Aquila. God will use this influential couple to aid the apostle in a myriad of ways going forward. And their connection comes originally through tent making, a trade the apostle shared and one he had to take up as he was waiting for financial support to arrive by hand of, by, by way of the Philippians in the hand of Paul and Silas, and I mean in Timothy and Silas. And as Paul is waiting, Paul is working. And by God's providence, he meets this couple to find work and to find housing, which enables him to continue the real work of preaching the gospel, as verse 4 makes clear. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. So God's sustaining and rejuvenating grace meets Paul in these two dear, faithful saints. Church, I wonder... Is that how you see brothers and sisters in the faith? When discouragement meets you, do you tend to see the Christian community as a tangible means of God's grace to you? Or do you tend to feel the desire to isolate yourself and tell yourself, you're all alone in this moment. No one can help me. Nobody understands. Christian, one of the primary means of God's sustaining grace in our lives, especially in the midst of discouragement, are other believers that God has put in our lives. Don't believe the lie that when you are discouraged, isolation is the best for you. Nothing could be farther from the truth. God uses people to extend His grace and sustain our souls in the Christian life. But there's a flip side of that too. Is that how you view your brothers and sisters? But is that how you view yourself? As a potential instrument of grace in the lives of others? God's sustaining grace meets the apostle here through this dear couple. And so it can for you in the lives of others. We find something else instructive here, I think, in terms of Paul's trust in God's sovereignty or in his provision for his life and ministry. If anyone knew of God's sovereign power and provision, it was the Apostle Paul. Paul had recently received a direct word from the Lord to minister in Macedonia. Paul had just witnessed an earthquake that supernaturally brought about his release from prison. Paul needed no convincing concerning the sovereign power and provision of God over his life, and yet never does that lead the Apostle Paul to sit on his hands in any way. If I'm reading my New Testament correctly, 
According to Philippians 4 and 2 Corinthians 11, one of the reasons Paul is anticipating Timothy and Silas' arrival was to receive financial support from the church at Philippi. He so desperately needed to do his ministry. And yet while he's waiting, what is he doing? He's working. We find him working hard. Putting his skills as a tent maker to use in sustaining his ministry. And as a result, he meets this couple. Paul's belief in God's sovereign provision over his life and ministry compelled him to work. Don't we get that twisted so very often? We sometimes almost force the hand of a sovereign God and pray, He's going to provide for me, I know it, and we sit back and just wait. It's not what we see in the Bible. Those who trust the sovereign care of God over their lives faithfully demonstrate obedience and get to work. Because of Paul's faith-filled hard work, he experiences God's sustaining grace for his life in this couple who would become dear to the apostle moving forward. Brothers, sisters, let me remind you, when God is doing one thing, he's doing a million things. Faithfulness does not require you having all the details figured out. In fact, most of the time it, it requires you not knowing half of the details. But it requires you, as we see in Paul, trusting, faithfully obeying the Lord, believing that He will answer your prayers and extend His sovereign provision for your life as He sees fit. That's what we see here in the Apostle Paul. And it's during this time... As Paul is working, the text says, Silas and Timothy do in fact arrive from Macedonia, most likely with financial support, which allows Paul to now focus on preaching the word. Verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ, that Christ, that the Christ was Jesus. So as we expect, Paul engages the Jews first, testifying from the Scriptures that Jesus is the Messiah, testifying that He is the One, the One who was rejected, the One who suffered on the cross, is in fact the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the Savior. He is the Messiah, the One whom is so hard for you to understand. But the Jews in Corinth were hardened in their unbelief. They could not accept a dying Messiah, as we see in verse 6. And when they opposed and reviled Him, He shook off His garments and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent. From now on I will go to the Gentiles. Shaking off his garments was a symbolic way of breaking relation with these people. Having faithfully demonstrated and delivered the truth of the gospel, Paul declares himself innocent of the judgment they remain under. Your blood be on your head. And this reminds us that the gospel falls on no neutral people, especially religious people. Following what's probably the most well-known verse in the Bible, John 3.16. Jesus declares in verse 17, For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And then He says, Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The preaching of the gospel does not bring condemnation. The preaching of the gospel does, though, provide an opportunity for release from the condemnation we are already under due our sin through the power of Jesus. Their rejection is on them. That is the gospel message, beloved. 
The gospel message is not work hard and try to receive from the Lord a sentence of no condemnation. The, the message of the gospel is that each one of us, apart from Jesus, have already been declared. There's a statement over us that says we are condemned because of our sin. And the message of the gospel is that Jesus came that He might receive our condemnation, take the very wrath of God and the condemnation due our sin upon Himself on the cross. The innocent Son of God would be condemned for us. He would lay His very life down for sin and offer for us forgiveness, cleansing, washing, newness of life, and then to receive the declaration of no condemnation over us. Not because of any actions we've committed, because of the work of the Son on our behalf. So we can say with Paul, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who stand in Christ Jesus. Rejecting the gospel message, Paul now focuses attention on the Gentiles in Corinth, beginning in the house of one named Titicus Gustus. And he left there and he went to a house of a man named Titicus Gustus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. And Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord. Together with his entire household and many of the Corinthians hearing Paul believed and were baptized. Don't miss the irony here in the text. Though God's power was rejected in the very place designed for worshiping him, the synagogue... It's alive and on display next door in the home of a Gentile and in the hearts of the ruler, the heart of the ruler of the synagogue and in his entire household. And as a result, many Corinthians, the text says, hear the gospel, believe in Jesus, are baptized in his name. Given the synagogue's reaction to Paul's preaching just a moment ago, you can imagine how they were going to feel about Paul setting up shop next door and converting the very leader of their group. It's at this point, in the midst of this moment, with all of these wonderful things going on and taking place, that fear begins to weigh on the apostle. And therefore, God extends His sustaining grace by way of a vision, or to be more accurate, a promise God issues by way of a vision. Verse 9. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you. And no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a, a year and six months teaching the word of God among them, it says. Paul was obviously struggling with fear. If not, why would God command him then in verse 9 not to fear? But I think we should ask the question, what is Paul actually fearing? Paul was fearing, I think, that which so very often arouses our fears. Paul was fearing what had not as of yet come about. Now this wasn't an irrational fear on Paul's part, right? Persecution, rejection, and personal harm was very real. It had happened to him in the past. We'd seen it in the past couple of cities he was in. But Paul was frozen by a future he had not yet faced. Something we all tend to do. I find it really encouraging that this word of the Lord comes to Paul, it says, through a vision at night. I don't know about you, but for me, it's the unknown that often steals my sleep. 
that which we cannot control is what tends to captivate our emotions. It's the unknown future of our lives. It's the spiritual uncertainty of our kids. It's the potential rejection of a friend. It's the perceived phone call from a doctor that we fear the most. And God commands us as He does. The apostle here, do not be afraid. But God never issues such a command in the Bible to have it merely just hang out there in the air by itself. No, God grounds His commands in His divine promises. Paul, do not be afraid, for I am with you. God issues the apostle the promise of His perpetual presence to be the pathway to overcoming His fear. The felt presence of another is can be helpful in so many areas of life. I do love the ocean. I actually love to be out in the ocean past the break, either swimming or sitting on a board. Taking in the beauty of San Diego is a really special thing, but that's not as enjoyable for me when I'm doing it and I'm all alone in the water. For some reason, by myself, I tend to imagine seeing fins and fish with big teeth. And I know that's somewhat irrational, that having someone there with me would help me. Maybe they'll get bit first, I'll swim off, I don't know. But the... The, while the presence, the actual presence of that person doesn't really change the circumstances, their presence does help curb my fears in that moment. Maybe the ocean's a bad example for you, but you can imagine a time when the felt presence of another brought great comfort to you, even if the circumstances weren't changed in the least. How much more should the actual perpetual presence of the almighty sovereign lord of the universe in our lives shape our fears for he can he does in fact change circumstances and he promises to always be with us and this promise of god's protection in the text serves a gospel purpose but go on speaking and do not be silent for i am with you and no one will attack you to harm you for i have many in this city who are my People. God is promising the apostle that his work will not be fruitless. Though the darkness of Corinth seems impenetrable, there are many who will respond to my sovereign call upon their lives through your preaching, Paul. Keep preaching. Keep speaking. And the language here of my people is interesting, strategic, unique, wonderful in so many ways. It serves as a reminder that salvation belongs to the Lord, not Paul, not us. And it makes clear that God's special covenantal people, my people, he says, a people he's always had, include both Jew and Gentile, and they even include pagan Corinthian. No one is beyond the grace of God if you are willing to submit to Jesus. As the Apostle Paul says later in the book of Romans, where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. That's what's being promised here. 
And because of God's sustaining grace, Paul would stay in Corinth, the text says, for over a year and a half, preaching the Word and forming this God's people here, this group of people, forming them into a gospel people, the church, that would become the church at Corinth. However, hostility does arise from Paul's ministry, but just as God promised, Paul is protected and unharmed. Verse 12, but when Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, this man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. A, a scene reminiscent of Jesus was brought before the, to be, is he, he's here brought before the Jewish leadership and convicted of blasphemy as well, teaching against the law was a charge punishable by death. But just as Paul was about to give his defense, God raised up someone to speak on his behalf to defend him. But when Paul was about to open his mouth, Gallio said to the Jews, If it were a matter of wrongdoing or vicious crime, O Jews, I would have reason to accept your complaint. But since it is a matter of question about words and names and of your own law, see to it yourselves. I refuse to be judge over these things. And he drove them from the tribunal. This brother defends the innocent, and the, and the good character of Paul is basically saying this man is guilty of no crime. A similar scene of Jesus as well. You're angry with him merely over a religious dispute, he says, and therefore my authority cannot be provoked here. So he shuts the whole scene down. But the corruption and power of the Jewish leadership won't stand for this completely. Verse 17, and they seized, they all seized Sostenus, the ruler of the synagogue, and they beat him in front of the tribunal. But Gallio turned his back on this. He paid no attention to any of it. What exactly this brother did, we cannot be sure. He's beaten publicly as a display of their authority. Most likely he either became a believer or at least he acted sympathetic to the gospel message and the apostles. And as the rulers of the synagogue, they can't stand for that. So they beat him publicly as a demonstration of their corrupt power. So we see here in these opening verses that though discouragement and fear met Paul, God's sustaining grace came to him. It found him. With, uh, through the connection, which is going to turn to a partnership and a friendship of Priscilla and Aquila, and through the words of his promise, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent for I am with you. And this very reality empowers the apostle to persist in faithfulness in verses 17 to 28 as he now heads to Ephesus. Let's look at persistent faithfulness in Ephesus in verse 17. After only two years, after about two years in Corinth, Paul sets sail for uh, Ephesus by way of Syria. And he does so with his new ministry team, Priscilla and Aquila. And as they head out, faithful persistence will follow them. After this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him, Priscilla and Aquila. They set sail from the eastern seaboard of Corinth and Sincrea, but before they do, Luke lets us know Paul gets a haircut. At Sincrea, he cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he, went, he, went, and he left with them but he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. Now the reason for Paul taking this vow is not explicitly stated. But it's important enough that Luke includes it here. Likely it's related to God's promise of protection as he persists in ministry. 
Jews often made vows to God, either in faithfulness for past things or blessings or petition for future. Something like that seems to be happening here. And Luke's inclusion serves as a reminder to us that Paul remained a pious Jew after becoming a Christian. Those things were not in opposition to the apostle, and neither should they be to us. Though Paul was rejected by the Jewish leadership, though he said, I'm turning to preach the gospel of the Gentiles, Paul understood himself as a Jewish man, devoted to the true religion of the Jews, which he understood finds its fulfillment in Jesus. So Paul voluntarily continued certain Jewish practices, not seeing them to be in conflict at all with his faith in Jesus. So with a fresh haircut, Paul arrives in Ephesus, where he picks up his preaching ministry again in the synagogue. When Paul is asked to stay in Ephesus, he declines here, but not without promising a follow-up visit, which he will do in chapter 19, verse 20. When they ask him to stay for a long period, he declined. But on leave, on leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus. Now, before shifting the narrative's focus back to Ephesus, where it's going to remain in the rest of this time, and then on into chapter 19, before Luke does that, he provides something of a summary statement of Paul's ministry beyond this city, wrapping up the second missionary journey. Look at verse 22. When he had landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church. And then went to Antioch. That's an important place. Remember it all began there. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next with the region of Galatia and Perga, strengthening all the churches. Paul does what we've witnessed him do already. He returns to check on and strengthen the churches throughout the region. And importantly, he returns to his sending church in Antioch, making the end of his second missionary journey that began back in, marking the the end of it, that began back at the end of, remember, chapter 15, right after the Jerusalem Council, Paul went to Antioch, was raised up there, was sent out. So Paul's third and final journey before heading to Jerusalem will begin next week in chapter 19. And it's not going to be exclusively in Ephesus, but a lot of it's going to focus its time in Ephesus. And it's here, in Ephesus, while Paul is away, that Luke returns our attention by introducing this Jewish man named Apollos in verse 24. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the Scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in the Spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. Now Luke's description of Apollos, you should have heard it, it, should, it tips his hand to the significant role this brother will play going forward. Apollos was a Jew. He was a native of Alexandria. That alone places Apollos in an elite class. Alexandria was the second largest city in the Roman Empire. It was the leading intellectual and cultural center of Hellenistic Greek world. The city was built and established around a massive museum and a 400,000-volume library like no other in the world. It was in Alexandria that Jewish scholars produced the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which the apostles are most likely reading. A lot of their references allude to that. Apollos was a learned and respected man. Furthermore, he was not only eloquent, the text says, 
He was competent in the scriptures. He was a gifted communicator with a thorough knowledge of the Bible and therefore great potential for the kingdom. Apollos was a preacher. That's what we see in the New Testament. He was a gifted preacher. And due to Apollos' popularity, his eloquence, his preaching gift, the church at Corinth later on, acting in the flesh, will try and pick sides and even divide between the apostles, Paul and Peter and Apollos. Though not an apostle, Apollos will later be respected and honored even on that level as an apostle. And Luke adds, he had been instructed in the way of the Lord, meaning there's really no other way to interpret this, meaning that he's a believer. And therefore his preaching was marked by great fervor and enthusiasm. Literally, he was fervent in the Spirit. Furthermore, we are told he spoke and taught about Jesus accurately. But then Luke does add one qualifier here, though he knew only of the baptism of John. Now this is a tough passage, a difficult passage to really understand it, especially if we take it, it's kind of easy on its own, but if we take next week in the early of chapter 19, it becomes difficult. But by the description Luke offers, it seems impossible to conclude that Apollos was not a believer. The way was a technical term describing believers at this time. And Luke says he was, he was taught in the way. And Luke uses it in reference, he uses it here in reference to Apollos. And Apollos is said to speak and teach of Jesus accurately. He does so fervently in the Spirit. Apollos is a believer. But he's a believer caught in the transitional moment of redemptive history. And he needs to be taught the full picture. His preaching is not inaccurate. It's incomplete. Which is what verse 26 points out. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. But Priscilla and Aquila heard him. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. So Priscilla and Aquila recognize Apollos' issue is not to be one of unbelief or false belief. It's an issue of discipleship. They take him aside, explain to him the way more accurately, which on this case was centered on the issue of baptism. And again, though the issue needing explanation is baptism, nowhere in the text that it says Apollos needed to be baptized which would have most certainly been the case had he been an unbeliever. I'm making that point because some argue that Paulus was an unbeliever here. I don't think that can be the case by the description. The baptism of John was indeed a baptism of repentance, but one, if you remember, that looked forward to and was awaiting the coming of the new age of the Spirit as the prophets longed to see. Think of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2, quoting the prophet Joel. But if you remember in that sermon, Peter made clear the new age had arrived with the ascension of Jesus. The age in which the prophets were looking forward to, he said it had come. So Apollos, being a Jew with a thorough knowledge of the scriptures and knowing the prophets' message, now receives a more accurate understanding of their message and of the gospel, particularly in the role of the Spirit in the new age. With this issue cleared up, we read no such apprehension at all regarding Apollos going forward. Verse 27. And when he wished to cross to Acacia, the brothers encouraged him. They wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, listen to the description. It says, He greatly helped those who through grace had believed, for he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the Scriptures that the Christ was 
Jesus. So the faithfulness and effectiveness Luke puts on display here of Apollos. His knowledge of the scriptures, his effective preaching was key in discipling young believers, it says, refuting the Jews publicly. He could stand on his own two feet with the scriptures open and refute the Jews publicly and presenting persuasively from the Bible that Jesus was indeed the Messiah, that he was the Christ from the Old Testament. He could show them and demonstrate. Apollos demonstrates himself to be a powerful instrument in the hand of God. And yet, all of that would have been mute apart from the humility of this man. This was an educated, gifted, highly influential figure who possessed a thorough knowledge of the Scriptures, and yet he was humble enough to receive correction from a couple known for tent-making. Apollos had forgotten more about the Bible than Priscilla and Aquila probably knew. It would have been easy for Apollos to respond in pride at this moment. And yet we find nothing of that here, no hint at all in the text. He humbles himself by demonstrating a teachable spirit. And because of that, because of that he's proved to be a useful, fit instrument in the hand of God for gospel proclamation. A humble servant is a useful servant. Prideful one, no matter the education, giftings, and ability, is a problem. God has blessed our church with a lot of gifted people. And might I even add a lot of gifted young people. And let me just offer a word of wisdom which I was offered and which I still try to come back to. That we need to be careful. You need to be careful about allowing your giftings and abilities to take you to places your character is not ready for. Apollos' giftings and his education provided him with great potential for ministry. But his character, his humility is what proved his effectiveness for ministry. The other lesson we need to learn is tied to this beautiful couple, Priscilla and Aquila. They bring into focus, we see this throughout the New Testament, but they bring into focus really the multifaceted nature of the Great Commission, the multifaceted mission of the church, and the necessary role of every Christian in it. If you've ever thought of yourself is not very useful to the mission of the church, I encourage you to search your Bible and trace the presence and impact of this humble couple in the New Testament. You're not going to find a really detailed description of them. In fact, the most detail we get, you just read it. You're not going to read of any extravagant things that they do. You're not going to find any titles given to them. But what you will trace is the constant, faithful presence of this couple in the background of Paul's ministry. Always being willing to serve and to play their role in the Great Commission. 
In nearly all of Paul's writings, he closes them out by giving final instructions, special thanks, and commendation to key people. Three letters. Romans, 1 Corinthians, 2 Timothy. You find the names of this beautiful couple. I'll read you two of them. 1 Corinthians 16.9 The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house. See that? Romans 16.3 Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, listen to this phrase, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. The Great Commission necessitates individuals answering the call to pastor and lead local churches. There's some young men in this room who need to consider if God is calling you for the sake of the Great Commission to be a pastor, to be an elder, to shepherd the flock of God. There's many others in this room, both men and women, who need to consider if God is calling you to be a missionary. To take the gospel cross-culturally to an unreached, unengaged people of the world to help them hear about Jesus for the first time. To have the scriptures translated into their language for the first time. To see a healthy church planned in their context. The Great Commission necessitates your calling, you answering that call. But the Great Commission also necessitates hundreds of believers answering the call to be Priscilla's and Aquila's. No title. No prominent role. Simply faithful servants in the body who understand that 90% of ministry is just showing up and serving. Seeing It requires you seeing your life, your career, your giftings, your abilities as opportunities to serve the body of Christ in advancing the Great Commission. The Great Commission necessitates an army of saints called to serve in the background of ministry. Of Priscilla and Aquila, who received no title, no special calling, it was said and recorded in Holy Scripture, That Paul and all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. What a wonderful commendation. The health of a local church, the health of this local church, is built not on the giftings or mere service of leaders, but the faithful service of hundreds of faithful Priscilla's and Aquila's, many of whom are looking back at me right now. The Great Commission demands a multifaceted army of saints. Therefore, every single believer has a role to play. Don't believe. It is a lie that you're not significant in the ministry of the local church in the Great Commission. Strive to be a Priscilla and Aquila. And to those who may be called to a titled position within the church, let me remind you, it begins with the disposition of an Apollo and a disposition of a Priscilla and Aquila. Save leadership in the church, the conversation 
of I think I'm called to be a pastor, but I'm not willing to show up for the prayer meeting. Save leadership, the, the conversation to say, I think I'm willing to be a missionary cross-culturally, but I'm not called to minister to preschoolers. It begins with service. That's what we see in the New Testament. Church, when you're discouraged, when it finds you, when it meets you, trust the Lord. That's what the text says. Lean into His grace provided to you through His people. God's grace comes to us in a myriad of differing means, beloved, but part of some of those means are sitting next to you, shoulder to shoulder. Maybe you're staring at the back of their head. but also rest in the perpetual presence of the Lord. He's with you. Do not be afraid. He's with you and He wants to empower you to persist in faithfulness. Seek the humility of Apollos and serve as the example in the example of Priscilla and Aquila. Acts chapter 18. Let's pray. God, we thank You for A wonderful text that reminds us, as it reminded Paul, a truth that ties the entire Bible together. That you call your people to yourself. That you create a people for yourself. And that you never leave nor forsake your people. You promise us not to enter into the valley of darkness, but you promise us whenever we enter into it, You will be there. And only when you be there, you will provide a table of fellowship for us in the midst of it. And you promise to see us. And you promise that your goodness will follow us all the days of our life. God, let us remember that your goodness comes to us in a myriad of ways. Uniquely, it often comes to us through brothers and sisters. Who are also walking in the same difficulty of life. Who are often met with discouragement but can minister to us and show us the way forward and help us to figure out what it looks like to persist in faithfulness. But God, let us also be clear about the promise of your word, that you're with us, you'll never leave us nor forsake us. God, let us see a brother like Apollos, not as just a gifted man, a gifted man who had a lot of potential, but a man who put his potential into practice through his humility through his willingness to be like Jesus, to humble himself, to put the interests of others first, to be willing to listen and to be teachable. God, let that be of each one of us. And God, let us be content with being a, a background figure in the New Testament. For you're the, you're the main focus, Lord. Let us be content in serving Let us understand the beauty of what it means to be all in, to be present, and to say, Lord, here I am. Use me. I don't know what that looks like, Lord, but use me. We see in the life of these two dear saints the effectiveness of such a life. We thank you for Apostle Paul. We thank you for leaders, gifted individuals. The church needs those, but the church needs anchors that hold it still as it moves forward. So God, we're grateful for the the beauty, the gifts of the body. We're grateful for the Great Commission, that it's serious enough, important enough, 
Every one of us have a role to play in it. And we trust as we labor and trust you, you will make your name known through us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.